Look at the adjective. Play. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh, going to put the butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans, and welcome to episode number 46 of Because WCW, the podcast where the big boys play. My name is the Twisted Genius, Dean Ayers, saying thank you so much for downloading this wherever you get your podcasts from. I am joined as ever by my esteemed co-host, Liam Happ, sports journalist extraordinaire That's and a man me. who's a very happy Charlton Athletic fan right now. Yes! I wasn't even sure if you were going to bring this up, but yes, I don't care how many of our two dozen fans it alienates, we are free of tyranny. Charlton Athletic are away from one of the worst owners in football history, and I'd say one of Absolute stinkers. The Roland du was was one of the worst. And pending the finalisation of it, and it should be fine. He's gone, and I'm in party mode. Excellent. So is, is this like uh, for people who don't follow football? Is this basically like when Bill Watts resigned? Yeah, you could. Or, or oh, there's countless wrestling promoters to which this would apply. It makes you realise just how terrible a a hobby we have just how many shit houses have been given key jobs it's it's no wonder everyone else laughs at us but uh, you we are we are filming this filming this we're recording this unusually on on a weekend on a sunday night so you know you had a good weekend live in front of a tv audience in hollywood california um i had a good weekend uh i went to see frozen 2 today with the daughter i see uh, and she is well. She she's free. She punches above her weight in a lot of ways, but at the end of the you, she shows you those signs. She's still very much still just three years old and a, a full feature film. I've taken her to cinema a couple of times. The same story. She's into the beginning, comes back to the end, but in the middle she's fidgeting. She's drifting away. Wants to do something else. Uh, but Frozen is Frozen. She loves the whole franchise like any other kid her age. So even if you know she's going to fade in the middle, you kind of have to go and see it. And, and is it you know is it like if I haven't seen Frozen One, I won't see Fro- no Fro- what's going on in Frozen Two, or is it you know a bit like when I saw Alien Truders Two, I didn't need to see Number One. But you did. Well, yeah. You didn't need to, but don't make people think that you haven't gone through one to twenty-seven. You did it WCW well, style, didn't you? You watched 25, 20, 25 followed by two. Yeah, that's. <laughs> <laughs> oh but dear. Yeah, um, for me, the way the way I look at movie sequels, I think you have you have to judge. You, you know, you judge a lot of films by the criteria it bestilled upon you for a film. But when it comes to sequels, you kind of need to get into the frame of, to do them justice. You've got to get in the frame of mind of uh, like it's season one and season two. Because the criteria for me is different. You're looking to see if they offer something that follows on from the first film, a, a good supplement to the first film. You want them to keep, still keep the the charm of the characters that 
that you got attached to from the first, but you want it to be fresh overall, and I think it accomplished that in droves. You know, I watch I, I watch a lot of Disney stuff at the moment because of my kid, and I get critical of anything. So if anyone ever wants to have like an hour-long podcast discussion about Tangled season three or the new version of Ducktales, I can hold my own. Those I'm really into Lion Guard at the moment as well. You I, can I get love... critical with this stuff. I love the fact that you will even analyse Frozen. It's magnificent. It's once a once a a, a columnist, always a columnist. Absolutely. We are, this course but, is my bread and butter. This is what I do. But we are we're not on our own. We have got for this podcast for this pay per view review. We have got ourselves a man returning for his hat trick. He is being given the Lonsdale belt. He's getting the match ball on the way home. We are very pleased to welcome. Friend of the show, Hooks on Wrestling's head honcho himself, Mr. Paul Benson. Paul, thank you for joining us. How are you doing today? Well, thank you for having me, guys. I'm pretty well. I've, it feels very, very alien. I haven't done a podcast in over a year, so be gentle, please, because it's almost grown back. Get the lube, I ask you. I'm, I'm glad we've uh, we've started this whole thing on you know on a high high intellectual level. As you know, usual. Well, as I just, I, I'm I'm just tempted to sack off um, the pay per view review and talk Ducktales. <laughs> if, if that's all right by you guys, we'll save that for the hooked on <laughs> podcast revival if you want. I'm not above that. I, I'm I'm all game for that, mate. Yeah. Absolutely. It'll be uh, it'll be an Easter egg. You know, you got to press uh, left, left, up, down, up, down on your uh, on your um, g- generic music player, and uh, you'll get the uh, Ducktales because Ducktales, yeah. So um, because Ducktales. So this this is um this is a new something new that we're doing in that just by a wonderful coincidence we've been doing Nitro watch-alongs through 1995 and the last Nitro Liam and I did was uh, Christmas Day 95 and two days later we have this show so this is the first time we've kind of continued the um continued the timeline and of course this is very very appropriate for uh, upcoming events because of course this event has WCW against New Japan Pro Wrestling. Well, WCW is dead and buried. New Japan is very much thriving and they've got their big event Wrestle Kingdom coming up very soon, Paul. Yes, they have, or potentially more sort of accurately, Wrestle Kingdoms um, having a two-day event, which is a, a certainly something Rob McNichols has been bashing on about for years that WrestleMania should do. So now we've got a dry run, 4th and 5th of January. Are you guys going to be watching both? I hope so. Absolutely. Yes. Seeing as you're hosting them, it would be uh, it'd be churlish not to at least watch awkward, the screen a little bit. It would, mm. yeah. You can always sit in the corner and just like put your fingers in your ears, but <laughs> prob- probably not the best look. <laughs> so yes, indeed, Liam and I will be hosting those two parties. And um, where can people? They're Belushi's in London Bridge. Yep, that's right. Belushi's London Bridge, which is kind of our home from home for our um, New Japan parties. You guys hosted last year, and it was absolutely fantastic. I think these. They're probably my favourite parties of the year, actually, because they're so surreal. It's right after the new year. Most of us haven't gone back for Christmas yet. It's 8 o'clock in the morning. Well, it's a bit earlier for, for, the, for the Sunday this time. And it's just absolutely 
bon- a bonkers time to watch wrestling and drink beer. And the fact that it's live Japanese wrestling as well just makes it possibly the most surreal morning, surreal, surreal day of the whole year. And I invariably end up at like two o'clock in the afternoon, drunk as a skunk, feeling like it's like <laughs> feeling like it's 11 o'clock in the evening. I can't really describe how much fun it is. So yeah, Belushi's um, tickets on sale now from, as always, hookedontickets.co.uk. And that is Saturday the 4th and Sunday the 5th of January 2020. Last year, Mr. Benson and I had what was supposed to be just a couple of drinks <laughs> before a nice early night. And um, and we ended up, the, my last memory is you and I getting a jug of cocktails each. <laughs> and, yes, um, indeed. If you, if you trawl back through uh, our Twitter timeline at BecauseWCW or Facebook.com forward slash BecauseWCW and look for that date last year or this year, you will see a picture of me looking absolutely fucking hanging out of my ass, <laughs> and it's all Paul Benson's fault. Guilty as charged. Guilty as I've, I've had some very odd experiences the last two years. So obviously we, we had that last year and then the year before, when we ended up, me and Richard Parr ended up going out until all hours. We we almost missed the start of the pay per view because we were upstairs asleep, and then ended up having to go for a job interview halfway <laughs> halfway through the pay per view, and it left left after about two matches. Got on the tube to this to what was it like the Bank of England? I wasn't being interviewed at the Bank of England, but it was right right by where it is. Had a little one hour sit down with those guys and a coffee, and then came back for the uh, Young Bucks match or the Cody Rhodes match, something like that. It was just. And then ended the day in a cottage in Labour in North Yorkshire. So, uh, yeah, odd day, to say the least. And I expect we'll we'll be having more of the same this year, eh? Absolutely. Well, you you do get people uh, knocking back pints at eight o'clock in the morning, which I've only ever previously seen in Weatherspoons. Or at an airport. It's airport airport rules, mate. Airport rules. As soon as as that wrestling goes on the TV, it's airport rules. We are in international waters, (laughs) as WCW might have said. Listen up, slap nuts. That's right. This is Jeff Jarrett, the chosen one. And you're listening to Because WCW. Now choke on that. Well, let's uh, let's crack on then with uh, with Starcade 95. So it is an epic contest of global proportions, we are told, as WCW has accepted the challenge from New Japan Pro Wrestling for a World Cup to be contested over seven matches. And, well, I'm wondering, what are the odds that it will be 3-3 going into the final match, eh? like every other best of seven in the history of wrestling? Apart, um, from last, apart from the Survivor Series last week, where they didn't even bother having any stakes in the final match. Oh, that's true, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but then they did have Keith Lee, and oh, my God, that was magnificent. So they did. Uh, so the opening titles run us through those seven matches. Um and I'm, I'm really not looking forward to Lex Luger v Masahiro Chono. Plus, we have a. Well, I'm just remembering <laughs> last time Masahiro Chono was on the WCW pay per view that we uh, we reviewed. With a far better worker than Lex Luger, though, this. <laughs> With a far this better is going to be fun. Yeah. Uh, we also have a triangle match between Luger, Flair, and Sting to, defend, to decide a challenger for later that night for Randy Savage's world title. Um, and Luger, Sting, and Savage all have World Cup matches as well. So Luger and Sting could theoretically end up wrestling three matches on one show. And as you pointed out very succinctly on our last watch long, Liam, bear in mind that the last WCW pay-per-view had a 60-man three-ring battle royal, so it's not like they didn't have a large roster they could have chosen from. Or a concept pay-per-view slot 
that they could have fit in this uh, World Cup idea and kept Starcade as you know a fucking Starcade. But they've done this. They've done this many times before. They seem at this period in time. I noticed they seem to have this this big thing about about making people wrestle more than once in Starcade because you had Starcade '89 was a round robin singles and round robin tag tournament and you had Flair Sting and Luger all in that. Starcade '90 they had the Pat O'Connor International Tag Team Tournament with uh, with Ted Petty and Matt Bourne pretending to be South African. And in fact, that's a really good one to review because you got the two Russian amateur wrestlers who seem to be blissfully unaware that it's a work. Um, and then you had Starcade '91 and '92 was the Lethal Lottery and Battle Bowl. So they they seem to have this thing at the moment of conceptualising Starcade. Unfortunately, so yeah. As as opposed to as you said, just you know making it just Starcade, the biggest night of the year. But well, hey. for the for the next for the next three Starcades after this one, they'd get more of a feel for making it their WrestleMania, and they yes. had big events. No, the next three were huge for them. Indeed, including Starcode 97, which is where this whole thing started. You can go yes. back and listen to that episode one. So we are coming at you from the Municipal Auditorium in Nashville, Tennessee, for the granddaddy of them all, as Tony Giovanni calls it. He is joined in the commentary booth by Bobby Heenan and Dusty Rhodes, who tells us we're going to see some clubbering tonight. Um, Heenan says Savage is hurt and he thinks Flair will become the new champion. Um, and seeing as Flair's the only person definitely wrestling once tonight, I think he's in with a good shout. So we start the World Cup off with Chris Benoit versus Jushin Liger. Um, every member of the Japanese contingent is accompanied by Sonny Ono as their manager for the evening. They're trying to get people to boo Liger, which isn't working. Um, these two have obviously worked extensively in Japan. Benoit wrestled in New Japan as Wild Pegasus, uh, or the Pegasus kid under a mask, and then Wild Pegasus when he lost the mask. Um, Shivani describes them as two of the finest mat wrestlers you'll find because of course that's what Liger's known for um, and within the first minute of the match Liger hits a rolling scent onto the floor which Shivani describes as the high risk manoeuvres of Jushin Thunder Liger so yeah come on Tone make your mind up um, Liger's countering all of Benoit's early offence um, because they know each other so well, but the commentators don't pick up on that bit. Um, Benoit finally takes over on offense, lands a high-angle back suplex. Um, he's using superior size and strength, gets a two-count with a German suplex. Liger counters with his trademark bow and arrow hold, or surfboard, as we know in the UK. Um, the crowd come to life for a superplex from Benoit, which gets a two-count. Benoit then goes for Liam's favorite move, the diving headbutt, but he misses. Um, Liger is now in charge, but his nonchalant cover where he's trying to be a bit heelish at allowing Benoit to kick out the pinfall attempts. Benoit fires back with a pair of German suplexes and a huge powerbomb. Uh, Benoit hits the diving headbutt, but then Kevin Sullivan comes to ringside, and obviously the Dungeon Demon, the Horseman, have been feuding recently on Nitro. Um, the distraction allows Liger to get a quick hurricane run and cradle for the pinfall to give New Japan a 1-0 lead. Paul, what did you make of this one? Well, I was uh, this when I looked at the card for this. This is obviously the one that stood out massively. Um, and having, you know, I'm I'm not been exposed to WCW in this era. I've not really seen a lot of J uh, Japan from back then as well. So I had high expectations. Um, didn't quite meet them. 
if I'm honest. I thought it was a lovely work match, but I think I'd built it up in my head that it was going to be some super amazing contest. Um, and it was very much a, a pay-per-view opener where the guys seemed to do just enough to create a bit of excitement and never really got out of third gear for me. So, yeah, not not the best way to open. Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, like, everything you'd expect if you go into this with a with a bit of knowledge of their previous matches in Japan and that they they run through the greatest hits so to speak they they hit all the you know the way they powerbomb each other and the dragon suplexes and things like that especially considering this is 1995 it is all like great stuff to watch and a lot of it holds up even in 2019 mm. for me but yeah uh, as good as the action is the match as a you know, the, the sum of the parts as a whole, especially with a finish, which is just, you know, you're trying to portray this big wrestling World Cup and straight away you've got a shitty finish with Kevin Sullivan come out. And obviously we know coming in the future is a huge uh, feud between Sullivan and Benoit and all the off-screen stuff that, that ensued from it. But at this stage in it, I think at least at the very least on Nitro, where we've been covering it with the watch-alongs, he's only really... Sullivan has only really expressed a disliking of Pillman more than once. He hasn't actually had any serious stuff with Benoit just yet. So it's no. it's a really strange time to do this. Uh, and considering the situation of both, do it clean. It's not harming anyone. Yeah. But um, I, I think, I mean, this went 10 and a half minutes, which is slightly less time than a sort of a New Japan... Um, junior heavyweight match would probably go, which is, as you say, Paul, it's what you're sort of comparing it to is what you're yeah. expecting. So, um, so yeah, it was, I mean, uh, we always talk about the art of the opener. It did, it did get the crowd, uh, it, the crowd on their feet towards the end with some, you know, as they ramped up, ramped up the gears, but uh, yeah, only, only third gear, as you say. Yeah. I think yeah. it benefited it though, because yeah, te- 10 minutes is a good opening match time slot. You have 10 minutes of two very familiar, very excellent, high-class guys just going out there and doing their stuff. And even though it wasn't particularly coherent or significant, it was catnip in that opening match slot. So I think that's how it works best. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, um, we go back to the locker room for uh, Mean Gene, and he is uh, there with Nitro stalwart Eddie Guerrero. Um, And... He's he's playing the humble babyface. He's he's an absolute world away from the overconfident, lying, cheating heel who's WWE peak. He he seems to be very much struggling with his promo. But um, I know you noticed something about Mean Gene here, Liam. Yeah, I, I spoke with you about this during the week. Um, so yeah, it, Eddie is doing the uh, the humble. Uh, most people remember this. He he was very much a white meat babyface. He was the he was the good, you know, old shucks kind of guy. So I suppose he's going to hit those strides anyway. But even by those standards, he's stumbling over his words a bit. He's if you watch this very carefully and you watch it knowing you're looking for something, you'll see he, he does fluff his lines and get a bit lost here and here. And you'll notice Mean Gene, and he's been complimented for this in the past in other interviews. He he holds Eddie's hand just with little subtle things, just like the way he will uh, just chime in with a word and almost steer him back on course. And oh. while that's great, and while that, as I said, that has been something he has done on previous shows we've covered, um, have a look at because Guerrero finishes this one quite well. 
he gets back on track, he finds that, that babyface fire, and he ends it very confidently, and he, he hammers home his final line of the promo. Watch Mean Gene as he does this. He's got the look of a proud papa, because he, he's gone in there and just held his hand in the early stages, and... Once he's taken his hand off the proverbial bike and it's wobbled, but Guerrero's riding that bike for the first time. He's uh, he's got that look as a parent would. I, I I really like that, and that was that was the significance of Mean Gene, and that's why he was about above most of his peers. It's just that when he was running the hotline like a sleazy bastard that we took, <laughs> and uh, and we have a, a sleazy hotline um plug later on in the show. Oh yeah. Um, what what I love is that they've got on the network now with when the uh, 1900 was it 1900 909 wasn't it when that number comes up on screen they've got a thing over the the screen that says that this number is no longer in use because I'm just wondering who would still want to call the WCW hotline in 2019 knowing the WWE they're probably forced to do that they probably tried to see how much money they could make out of it. <laughs> set up a proxy hotline to just milk cash off people who actually call it but they're forced to by law. Okay, we move on to match number two. It's Koji Kanemoto against Alex Wright. So Kanemoto comes out with the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Championship belt. So as champion, you know he's not going to lose. Out comes Alex Wright with his now legendary European techno entrance music. Um, Kanemoto's wearing long martial arts pants and shoes, which I don't seem to be able to find him ever wearing at any other time in his career because obviously in America, all Japanese wrestlers are martial arts experts. Um, this one's being contested at a more deliberate pace, and um, I, they just don't quite seem to be working together too well. Um, they both tumble to the floor, work following a crossbody block from right, which again looks awkward. Um, the crowd are very quiet; they don't really seem to be familiar with Kanemoto, um, and right isn't anywhere near the level of Chris Benoit. Um, Kanemoto takes control of the of the match, hits a tiger suplex or great move as Tony Schiavone calls it. He lands a moonsault but picks right up rather than go for the pinfall, which the commentators say is a huge mistake. Uh, Wright gets a near fall from a German suplex. Um, he tries a top rope drop kick, and Kanemoto intercepts him with a or tries to intercept him with a drop kick of his own, and both men miss, which is to me a moment that summarizes the entire match really. Um, finally, Wright nails his top rope drop kick in a superplex, but Kanemoto kicks out. The crowd is still silent. Uh, Kanemoto intercepts right in the corner, hits him with a jawbreaker and the turnbuckles, a bit like snake eyes, rolls him up with a double leg cradle for the three count. It's 2 0 to New Japan. Uh, Paul, what were your thoughts on this one? Was, was Alex Wright ever over? At any um, point? He he um he had that character of Berlin later on, which was vaguely over, but um, as vaguely. a babyface baby face Alex Wright, he was. He was just there, wasn't he? He was a placeholder. I find it so remarkable. Every time I listen to one of these uh, Conrad Thompson podcasts, whenever his name comes up, everyone's got pretty good things to say about him. You know, handpicked by Ric Flair, big star potential. He, uh, and the, I've probably seen him, you know, watching Nitro from 96 onwards as I did. You've probably seen as many Alec Ryan matches as anybody else, I'd guess, wouldn't you say? He's got to be up there. Um I can't remember a damn thing he's ever done. I just, he's just, there's just no substance behind it for me. Like it's similar to what Liam was saying about the last match. 
it's it's kind of there. Like you know, you've got these nice hard hitting uppercuts and moves and whatever else, but there is just zero dynamism. Um, yeah, and you know, I really I enjoyed I enjoyed it for what it was. I enjoyed what these guys brought to the table, but again, I just I found myself my attention drifting completely, and I was not, you know. Just, just couldn't. I just couldn't hold my attention at all. I just, there's, there's nothing more to say about. It. I'm, 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 I'm sort of fudging this now, guys, because I can't, I can't offer anything entertaining to say. It was just there. The, the, the one Alex Wright match that we all remember, of course, uh, is, um, I, was it from one of the Super Bowls, Liam? The legendary yes, match with Paul, Paul Roma. We covered that. Paul Roma fired <laughs> when he oh went absolutely. God. Basically, Paul Roma goes just batshit crazy and just decides to take the piss out of Alex Wright, not sell <laughs> anything, and is basically give these marching orders the next day. Check. What show was that? That was Super Brawl 95. Episode. I can't remember what episode it was, but it's the one we did with Mr. Justin Richards. Check out oh. that episode. It's a really good show we did. And, yeah, that match, the opening match, is just absolutely incredible in terms of... Well, if you're going to measure things in terms of because WCW, I know a lot of production gaffes and weird booking decisions are up there, but Paul Roma's barefaced unprofessionalism to the point <laughs> they had to send his own tag team partner out to ringside to be his corner man, which wasn't originally planned, to essentially cheer him on, but you know, beneath the the uh, the mask of it, intimidate him into playing ball, which still oh didn't work. Oh my gosh. Orndorff was there, because Orndorff at this point was also like a behind-the-scenes guy, as he was when he had that infamous fight with Vader uh, a few months later. Uh, and he's Roma's tag team partner, so they've sent him out there, and he's basically slamming the canvas every now and then, saying, come on, Roma, win this match! But the way he's glaring at him, what he's saying is, stop fucking about and do your job. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, speaking of that match, this this isn't, if you, if you look at it, this isn't a million miles away in terms of, you know, because th- these two are actually telling, if you look at it, these two are actually telling a, a really good professional wrestling story. It never fails. If you have a guy who's out of his depth and you have him take an absolute beating, it's very easy to draw your emotions because you feel, well, yeah, he's out of his depth. And so he's, he's plucky little babe face spots, which were one of the things he was very good at, Alex, right? He was good at doing that plucky babe face thing. And as a result, these two had this really good story and they're really tapping into it. But the sheer miscommunications and this, this constant non-stop determination from Koji to really hammer home the fact that he is a level above like doing the things like pulling him up after three and really say you know he should have given Alex Wright a little bit more because I don't care what the levels are if, so if, if you want to portray this as real someone drop kicks you in the fucking face it's going to hurt you <laughs> you need to say you know there's nothing shameful in selling for your opponent's offense Unless it's like Marco Stunt versus The Big Show, in which you think, yeah, it would oh, hurt. Yes. But, but even then, if he, if he had, if The Big Show had Marco Stunt doing a, a somersault towards him at bullet speed, it's gonna graze his face. It's gonna phase him. So do pay some respect to, and, and you'll get a better match out of it. And no one's gonna think, oh well, some champion here's over there having a good match with Alex Wright. Fuck off. So that was my yeah. biggest problem with this because they had a good story. They were working it, and the, and the crowd were vibing that because they saw the golfing glass. 
Yeah, I mean, from from all accounts, from what I I remember from hearing from people at the time, that Kanemoto didn't have the greatest reputation as a uh, generous worker, should we say? <laughs> so it doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Incidentally, um, I've just found it. If you do want to uh, go back and um, share our review of uh, Super Bowl 1995 or Super Bowl Five, it's episode number twenty. Um, from September 2018. So, yes. Um, so we go back to Mean Gene. He's interviewing Sonny Ono as if the poor fucker isn't busy enough managing his seven matches in a row. Um, he says New Japan will go 5-0 up. Gene says if that happens, they'll stop the tournament, which directly contradicts what Tony Schiavone said <laughs> earlier, that we'd have seven matches regardless. Um, ono then says he's going to buy WCW, to which Gene says WCW is not for sale. Mm. Uh, Elvinous. Tell that one to Vince. Um, so match number three. Here we go. Let's get it out of the way. Lex Lugavi, Masahiro Chono. We all remember uh, Havoc 92, which was one of the worst pay-per-view matches of all time. He's back, though. Uh, and this time he hasn't got Rick Rude to carry things. Um, so Luger comes out with Jimmy Hart, but he's still getting cheered. Luger starts off on fast offense, press slamming Chono over his head. He continues to use his power to keep the advantage. Uh, the commentators failed to pick up on the idea that Luger would want to get this match over and done with quickly to conserve his energy for the triangle match and the potential world title match later on. Um, Chono blocks and reverses the suplex. He takes over from this point. Heenan talks on commentary about Chono's martial arts ability because, as we've said, all Japanese wrestlers have martial arts ability. Um the commentary so far, uh, yeah, I mean, this, this is the theme of the show, and we'll, we'll talk about this more later on, I'm sure, but the commentary has been bloody awful. Um, Chono hooks in his patented STF near the centre of the ring, but Luger eventually gets himself over to the ropes to break it. Chono hits the Yakuza kick, or the Mafia kick, as they call it. Dusty Rhodes asks Giovanni what he's talking about, and Heenan <laughs> mocks Giovanni for calling a move by the name of the move. And um, not for the last time on this pay-per-view, my notes have just said, give me fucking strength. <laughs> um, Chono comes off the top rope. Luger intercepts him with a back elbow. Then he hoists Chono up into the torture act to end the match out of nowhere. Um, six and a half minutes. WCW's pulled one back. It's 2-1. Uh, Paul, did you come out of this match unscathed? <laughs> it was brutal. It was absolutely brutal. But, you know, which I remember Chona again, you know, confess that I did not watch any of this at the time. I didn't get into anything outside WWF until 96, mid 96. Is that for me, there's never been a wrestler whose gap between his aura and reputation and actual skills in the ring is greater than Masahiro Chono. In my head, he's this all-conquering Japanese badass. Holy shit. He's just really awful. <laughs> as a, <laughs> yeah, as, a, as an American import, you're absolutely right, Paul, because for me, any time Masachono boarded that plane over, here, over to the States... Uh, it must have been booked by going places because to him it was a fucking holiday. <laughs> it was he came over here for a paid vacation. Every he time. did nothing. 
He, yeah, I was going to say he he was very different in Japan, but he just seemingly did not like wrestling in America. Well, it's interesting what you say that Liam and and Dean actually as well, because the one thing I noted from it is there was just yeah, wasn't even his lack of intensity. He was he was, I think he was going through his shopping list during the match. <laughs> he was he was trying to work out. He was trying to remember what he said he'd buy his wife from duty free because you could look in his eyes and he just was not. He wasn't in that ring at all, and not in a sort of concussion way, but in a, I've got so much, so many better things to do in my time than fuck around with this. Yeah. And, and it was, there was no presence at all. Yeah. He wasn't even phoning it in. He was getting no. someone else to phone it in for him. Yeah. He, to phone it in. Yeah. he didn't even try <laughs> to hide for, it. Uh, for, for any poor soul. Well, I don't know if I'll use that for Luca particularly because he knows more about phoning in the wrestling match than most people do. <laughs> but for any American wrestler who had to face up with Chono in America, it was the equivalent of making love to someone who is twilling around on their Facebook on their phone the whole time. Been there. <laughs> <laughs> I said I was sorry about that. I got an important message uh, from Dean. It's not a problem. Okay. <laughs> I forgive you. <laughs> so um, we then have another backstage promo. It's Mean Gene and Sting. Um, he says that he and Luger are friends, but they've got to do what they've got to do. And also says he'll never, ever forgive Ric Flair for what he did. Um, and then we go back to match number four of the World Cup. And if you're worried about how this World Cup was going, don't worry. Here's the clash of styles of Johnny B. Bad v. Masa Saito. Um Masa Saito, who uh, was also part of Starcade 90, where um, he was the, even though he was of advanced years, was the only man hard enough to take down the Russians who didn't realise it was a work. We've, we've got to review Starcade 90, Liam. Someone's got, someone's going to want to do it with us. We'll find um, someone. We'll find someone. So Johnny B. Bad is accompanied by Kimberly, who's in a cheerleader type outfit, which matches Bad's outfit. Um, Saito is 53 years old by this point, but he's still one of the hardest men who ever lived. And his face just says that he's got no time for any of your shit. Um, Ono says that Kimberly's what's wrong with America. Kimberly grabs the mic to spout as many racial stereotypes about the Japanese as possible. Let's just say it wouldn't go in 2019. Um, seeing as bad as the WCW television champion, I'd imagine he was going to win this one, but let's see what happens. Um, again, the crowd are silent because they're unfamiliar with Saito, although he's uh, wrestled for WCW before, as we've said. And he was also an AWA champion um, in the early 90s before that promotion shut down um and of course he went to prison with ken patera for lobbing a rock through mcdonald's when they weren't open but they funnily enough don't bring that up in commentary um so um we have a chop and punch exchange very much reminiscent of typical new japan offense ono then gets physically involved for the first time choking bad with a japanese flag bad lands a big knee lift and a top rope axe handle followed by a top rope sunset flip for a two count ono gets up on the ring apron uh bad grabs him and then saito tips bad over the top rope which causes a disqualification for throwing your opponent over the top in a pretty awful finish which just screams of politics um 
Saito then um, gets in the ring with Kimberly, but Bad comes to her rescue, attacking Saito till he leaves the ring. He then goes for a flip plancher, which Saito seems to be completely unaware of because he misses him totally, and Bad lands with a splat on the floor. <laughs> um, my my diplomatic notes here put not a classic, but um, it's now two two in the World Cup. Uh, Paul, what did you think of this one? Johnny B. Bad, what a hero, eh? Leveling it up for WCW. Um, yeah, kind of the reverse of Chono, really. I, I'm really struggling, guys. There's not a lot of substance here, is there? There's not a lot of substance. I, I, Johnny B. Bad was a guy who I really, despite obviously popular opinion, I really liked Johnny B. Bad in WCW when I used to go back and watch it. And I used to love him as Wildman Mark Marrow, but this is just shit. <laughs> like, and Saito, brilliant presentation. Is he, like, forgive my ignorance, guys, is he another one that was a much better worker when he was wrestling in Japan, or is he just a shit worker generally? No, he's just old by this point. I mean, <laughs> he um he was um he was a legit um Olympic wrestler. I thought so. And one thing I loved about him is how different he looked. Like he looked like an absolute mean bastard killer. Um and he looked old and rugged and it, it yeah, it just all fell apart when he came in the ring and you know, he's it's not like he's in there with anyone that can help him out at all, but yeah, this was just a pile of poo, wasn't it? I've got to echo your sentiments about Johnny B. Bad, Paul. You don't have to feel shamed in saying you liked him around this time because the, the, truth, <laughs> of the, the truth of the matter is, is Johnny B. Bad was absolute peak. This was Mark Merritt at his best. And some of the matches he was having with Diamond Dallas Page around this time, he, he dabbled with a few other opponents he was compatible with. He was having some blinding matches at certain points. And he was really, compared to those early years where he was just like a green wrestler doing really homophobic borderline stuff uh, at this mm. point he's you know he's charismatic he's popular and he can go in the ring which is why it's so funny seeing him in there against Saito who just uh, he's just he's as interested as Chono as you guys said and I'll say one thing about this whole series so far we you know they've done some good workers in this World Cup so far they've done some good matchmaking some good pairing they've put some lousy workers in on some some guys who don't want to work and they've done some lousy matchmaking but the one thing that has been consistent throughout is that this idea has been a fucking train wreck uh, regardless <laughs> of how good the wrestlers involved were or how compatible they could or should be it has been terrible and one thing I do want to add quickly before I lose the chance is to rebut you Dean from the previous match and it's something that carries on throughout the show anyway um yeah, I suppose technically, as far as being actual wrestling commentary, it's a lousy effort from all three at this pay-per-view. But nonetheless, for me, it's essential listening. Hearing those three just tail off on each other and ignore what's going on in the ring. <laughs> yes. It was just, it's, it was like seeing roadkill in a way. It's like commentary you have to listen to. Just gloriously off-topic. and it's just, They were cracking me up with just how off-key they were. How could they not? There's nothing. There's nothing to get your teeth into at all. Can you imagine this as a commentator? What do you talk about? It's completely tailing off the head too. It's, it's fucking hilarious to me. I mean, the thing, the, the other thing that with with this this whole Champa um... coming in. Sorry, <laughs> I, I, did you not hear? Was that you, Paul? Was that beep? It wasn't me, but I did there hear was, it. There were there were beeps. That bam, was. Bam, uh... bam, 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 b
did you hear those three beeps? That was, um, I'm in my kitchen and that was my dishwasher telling me that it's finished <laughs> its cycle. I didn't think my microphone was that sensitive and that it would pick up. But... I thought you were either getting a crutch to the head from Champa or you're about to be locked in the transmission. I see. It was one of those. <laughs> yeah, the transmission, yeah. Um, no, what was, I was going to say, because I was thinking at first, you know, have these guys just come over and been you know, just wrestling cold or had they been on TV beforehand? And I mean, from looking at looking at this, it does it does seem that um, that they they were filming some um, WCW worldwide stuff. Or at least I mean, I'm looking at Kanemoto and he was he was having matches um, in Orlando, Florida in the middle of the middle of um, November and the very beginning of December. Um, because we'd had previously this WCW World in Japan, a joint show that they held, well, they had two nights, one in the uh, Ryogoku Kokujikan, the Sumo Hall in Tokyo, and then the next night at Hamamatsu Arena in Hamamatsu. Um, although with those worldwide shows, they record them way in advance. So again, knowing WCW, it wouldn't surprise me if these were recorded before they aired after Starcade, but... It just seemed that even if even if these guys were on TV for a couple of matches, people just didn't know who they were, with the exception of Jushin Liger. Ah, well, if you think of the watch-alongs we've been doing, then that's a benefit of, of doing this pay-per-view in line with that, is we know, watching those things, the only coverage they gave to this World Cup concept was storylines of Bobby Heenan and, and Sonny Ono being in bed together. Not like that. <laughs> Not like that. But, could, yeah. but there, yeah, there was talk, and, and they bring it up in in the commentary on this pay-per-view as well. Uh, so they carry on with that little bit. The idea being that Bobby Heenan's uh, been compromised, compromised financially by Sonny Ono, and he's kind of rooting for Team New Japan to win this because, obviously, uh, he's very morally dubious, is Heenan, as a character. Yes. Um, and, that yeah, that is certainly something that, that runs throughout the um, throughout the entire show where Heenan is rooting for the Japanese being, you know, going against his own country as such. Yeah. Um, okay. So we get the next, um, our plug for the next pay-per-view is in February at Super Bowl six. We have a, a little video for that. We then go to Mean Gene and Jimmy Hart backstage. And thankfully, Liam, we start with Jimmy Hart, not Lex Luger. It's all right. Um, neither he nor Luger need Mean Gene's intervention here. Luger knows exactly what to say. He just delivers it poorly. Um, he says how Randy Savage is a weakened champion, that he's beaten him every time he's faced him. And he also tells Jimmy Hart that he wants to do the triangle match on his own because Sting is his friend. Um well, I guess we'll get on to the, the Sting-Luger storyline in a bit, but I know, as you've said before, Liam, it is one of your absolute favourites of this this era. Yeah, I, th- I think the better parts of it are to come. Uh, it becomes more of a tag team. Man. We will get to that in due time. The watch-alongs will rock us through that beautifully. So, But yeah, it is still quite intriguing at this point, with one exception, and I did like the fact that in the interview earlier with Sting and me and Gene, Sting pretty much uh, played it up where he actually berated, uh, with a light heart, he berated Mean Gene and said to him, come on, ask the question you're always going to ask. What's the deal with me and Luger? Uh, because, yeah, the, the thing was, is even though you could be more layered with it, they would literally have Mean Gene the commentators say that same thing. What's the deal between him and Luger? Well, he's kind of explained the deal 
we know the deal. They are they are they are on the other side of enemy lines, but they are friends. Okay, we've got that. Now we want to see how that develops, and it will. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, hearing me and Gene go, "What's the deal?" every week is shows there's not much there's not much depth to it so far. But thankfully, the storyline itself will more than carry its load as we go along. Okay, it's now time for match number five, which is uh, another match in the World Cup. This is um, Shinjiro Otani against Eddie Guerrero. Um, so Otani, whose name is spelt wrong in the caption, well done, WCW, is just 24 years old at this time. Guerrero is 28. Um, Shivani says how Guerrero is no stranger to Japan, although they do maintain kayfabe and obviously don't mention that he was the second black tiger. Um, Dusty Rhodes talks about how he struggles to pronounce Otani. And um, <laughs> did did you guys ever watch King of the Hill? No. I oh. Yes, yeah, so because to me at this moment in time, Dusty Rhodes has never sounded more like Boomhauer from King of the Hill. <laughs> Would this be when he refers to this match as the pivotable match in the tournament? Yeah, I didn't even notice that one, yeah. but yeah, let's but yeah, say I, yes. I see. I'll, I'll pick up what you're putting down with that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we start with Matt wrestling for the first couple of minutes. Um, Otani is in plain black trunks and lacks a charismatic spark. So, yeah, this is where Sonny Ono should be carrying the load as his manager at ringside, but he's not an experienced manager, so he's not picking up on this himself. Um, the match springs to life with a flying head scissors takedown from Guerrero. He then clamps on. Um, a Boston crab in the center of the ring. Guerrero follows up with a huge power bomb and a brain buster. Um, and, you know, we've said this before with the Nitro watch alongs, all of his offense looks so crisp and he's an absolute joy to watch. He's, you know, easily one of the best workers in WCW at this moment in time. Um, Atani then turns on the offense with a spectacular springboard from uh, dropkick from the apron into the ring, getting great elevation. Um, he follows this up with a springboard plancher to the floor. And these springboard moves, which are a speciality of Atani and haven't really been seen in WCW before, are really um, they're livening this crowd up and they're you know, presenting him to an unfamiliar audience as a threat to Guerrero. Um, Atani hits a German suplex out of uh, nowhere, which Shivani calls correctly, which Dusty Rhodes rather angrily goes, will you stop it with the German suplex, Tony? <laughs> it's just a suplex. <laughs> and for the second time in this show, I've just written, give me fucking strength. Um, I'm sure it's not the last. Guerrero pops the crowd with the top rope, Hurricane Run, which gets a two count, followed by a crucifix bomb. Um, which is also two counts for the surprise of the crowd and the commentators. Guerrero lands a beautiful springboard cross body block of his own on the floor back in the ring. Atani hits a springboard drop kick to the back of Guerrero's head, catching him unawares. Guerrero sells it beautifully, and you really think he's been knocked out by this move coming from behind, you know, not aware of it. Um, Guerrero attempts another Hurricane Rana into a roll-up, and it's a series of reversals which end up with Guerrero rolled up in a sunset flip position. Atani steals the win. It's 3-2 to New Japan. Uh, Paul, what do you think of this one? Loved it. Loved it. I'm, you know, I'm, well, I've always been a massive Eddie fan, but I remember back my first ever exposure to him, the first time I ever heard his name mentioned, wasn't on screen. It was... Um, it was an epic. It was, an, it was a, an article in, I think, Pro Wrestling Illustrated or one of the Aptor mags or something like that. And it was basically saying around this time, Eddie Guerrero, future world champion, 
Mm. And you took look at it, one look at him in the stills, and it was like, this is a Mexican dude who's five foot eight, wearing you know a singlet, a long singlet, and wearing a mullet. Yeah, it is not going to happen. I can totally see why people were saying that back then. Now, it was great. It was so crisp. Everything meant something. I loved the story that they were telling. How you know they were just so evenly matched, and it was going to be a one little mistake or one little sort of um, deliberate, you know, one 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 tiny tiny sort of differential that would make the difference. And yeah, I just, I just, well, it was a sea of poo, wasn't it? <laughs> this card, but this was an absolute island. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely, it's an island in a sea of poo. Um, yeah, stick stick that one on, uh, stick that one on your gravestone. Uh, it was absolutely <laughs> wonderful. Yeah, I think I'll think I'll pass if that's all right, Paul. <laughs> Thanks for the generous offer. Um, I, I I wouldn't go quite that far because the first two matches for me were were very good. But they had their problems in some ways that we've we've just gone over, and obviously there's a lot of each. Like uh, I have to wonder, do WCW at this stage even have road agents or producers? Because there's a lot of issues with the Japanese wrestlers coming in, and the, and and the, the you know the, the barriers that you have to overcome with things like that. That nobody seems to be doing anything to try and alleviate and that's despite the fact that the majority of them are going in there against uh you know north american wrestlers who are very versed with the japan the japan the japan scene <laughs> easy for me to say and japanese wrestlers overall uh atani has a little bit of that in this like it, and i'm not a huge japanese wrestling encyclopedia but i've watched a bit and one thing always stuck out for me whenever I watched Atani was he's actually, when he wants to be, a glorious dick wrestler. He could be a heel like no other with the slaps and the nonchalant things. He would do it, but unlike with the Koji match earlier, he would put it more into the dichotomy of the match and not just be a borderline Paul Roma. As you said, Dean, Koji himself has, has, has done that better in on other nights. Ooh. Uh... But yeah, this is definitely the match of the night. I put it above the first two matches, which were decent enough. Uh, it could have, it could have done with Atani being a bit. To know that it was in his locker, or at least it was, I guess maybe he developed that a little bit later on in his career, perhaps. Uh, but at this stage, he, he's a little bland. And yeah, if we'd have got full-on Dick Atani, we'd have had an absolute classic. But unlike the Liger Benoit match, which was good. Uh, these these two have got more of a battle going on. It's more engrossing. You are wondering who's going to come out on top, rather than two guys doing very good moves before Kevin fucking Sullivan comes out. And as we've <laughs> as we've discussed in this podcast, if Sullivan appears and isn't dressed as an old lady or an extra on Baywatch, it's minus points. <laughs> Kevin Sullivan dressed as an old lady is is one of the enduring images that that we love. <laughs> And he gave Hogan a Hitler moustache during that yes. same segment. It's the most <laughs> glorious thing in WCW history, and it's underappreciated. Kevin Sullivan dressed as an old lady, shaving Hulk Hogan into Hitler. He he knew what was going to come with that Gorka video, didn't he? Yes. <laughs> anyway, um, moving on swiftly. Um, <laughs> mean, Gene, mean Gene is backstage again with Randy Savage. Now... Last time we were uh, we were 
watching Nitro, we we said that Randy Savage, he was on the good stuff that week, wasn't he? And boy, oh boy, he's absolutely off his tits again. <laughs> um, not making any sense at all. I, if you asked me what Randy Savage's backstage interview was talking about, I wouldn't be able to tell you because I couldn't make any sense of it. But um, he's flying around the room shouting and... Um, yeah, Mean Gene informs us that Hogan is suspended to account for his absence. Um, and Savage says he's in the zone and that Hogan will know what that means. Yep, Randy, it means you've got the good shit. Yeah, they, <laughs> they, they do lines together. We get that, especially from that recent, not the most recent Nitro before this, but what was that one a couple of Nitros ago, which had Savage and Giant doing David versus Goliath on coke. Yes. And then Hogan running out and just hitting everyone with a chair, showing more energy than he had in years. And uh, the refrigerator, the NFL player, just completely oh, yes. shrugging off the chair. Shot. That was just the most wonderfully crazy batshit ending of a Nitro episode <laughs> you could ever imagine. But I do have to ask you, Dean, that it makes one this promo, was that pre-taped, considering what's about to happen? Was it pre-taped? Yeah, because he was in he was in the zone, as he just said. He was, you know, he was really revved up, and we has two matches on this show. And as we get to him, you'll see why I'm starting to wonder if that coked up oh, promo was from a different uh, night. Maybe or, it just had or, a um, real downturn to it. Yeah, he just burnt himself out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so it is World Cup match number six. It's Randy Savage against Hiroyoshi Tenzan. Um, who has one of the greatest mullets in the history of wrestling. Oh, yes. That's covering a lot of mullets. It's <gasps> um, kind of short and spiky at the front and proper full-on shoulder-length mullet at the back. Um, Heenan mentions how Tenzan could prove to be instrumental in crowning a new world champion if he injures Savage in his dodgy arm, which is bandaged up, which is a very good point. Um, Heenan then undoes his good work by talking about Savage facing Flair later, giving away the result of the triangle match and not paying any attention to Savage's match in the ring right now. Um, Savage is, uh, sorry, Tenzan is on the offense um, after a minute or so, and it makes me start to wonder if we're going to follow. Um, now, Liam, for those of those of our listeners who who may not be familiar with this, and maybe for the benefit of Mr. Benson as well, the please enlighten everyone on what we mean by the Randy Savage Nitro match formula. So yes, as everyone who likes a bit of wrestling is familiar with the match man knows, he is capable of great things in that ring. He is one the best of all time. Some of those amazing energetic <coughs> coked up promos he can do are brilliant. Uh, but there do seem to be, you know, days, weeks, nights where he's not feeling it. So he conjured up this little formula where he would basically go down to the ring, do his poses, he would then sell for five, six minutes straight. And then he would make a comeback, hit an axe handle, hit a body slam, hit the elbow and get the pin. And he would just dog so many nights like this. So if you were lucky, you'd get him at his absolute full spectrum, the best of, of Savage. But if he weren't feeling it, that's what you got. And I don't know what you thought, Dean, but to me, that's exactly what we're... This might have been one of the the peak Savage formula instances. Well, it, 
Well, indeed, we're getting a pay-per-view rollout of the, the Nitro <laughs> formula because, yeah, as the match goes on, it's all Tenzan as Savage continues to sell. He gets taken to the floor, dropped across the guardrail. Back in the ring, Tenzan lands a diving headbutt off the top for a two-count. Um, but then he misses a moonsault, so Savage then hits a clothesline. He attempts a suplex from the apron into the ring, completely screws it up, doesn't get Tenzan over the top rope, and instead lands him stomach first across the rope, which looks terribly painful. Um, Tenzan then has to roll into the center of the ring in position while Savage goes up to the top to hit the big elbow for the three count. So um, basically, yes, hits three offensive moves to get the win. Um, and, uh, hey, what do you know? It's 3-3 going into the final match. Who the funk it? Oh, my God. <laughs> Paul, what do you make of this one? I've, I'm, you might as well have just told me that Father Christmas doesn't exist, Liam, because <laughs> I would say, I would argue that Randy Savage is probably, if not my favourite, my second favourite wrestler of all time, and I've never, ever noticed that formula. Mate, but I love him. I, I love him too, but... <laughs> but you watch you watch a lot more Nitro than me, so I definitely defer to your judgment on it. <laughs> and now I'm going to be watching out for that like a hawk. But yeah, bang on. This was the most formulaic match. Savage just makes everything entertaining. And that's I suppose that's the difference between the earlier matches where we got the more sort of, you know, vanilla, for want of a better word, mechanical guys. Savage can go through the exact same motions, but because of that coked-up, colourful, crazy man act... You don't really notice. What do you, <laughs> you mean? Just act? <laughs> you just get away with it. I, you know, this was this was clearly a match on rails. Clearly, like you say, it was it was there to conserve energy for what he was going to do later on. But gosh, it, it just entertains me every time I see Savage in motion doing pretty much anything. I could see a, a Randy Savage walking around Tesco's, and I think I'd probably give it at least two and a half stars. That might <laughs> be me. <laughs> Sorry about that. It was it, it was fancy dress night, and I needed some beers. Um, well, mate, his... the beard the beard was impressive. <laughs> well, I tell you. you something. I tell you something that I I noticed about Savage later on when he comes out for the world title match. Because for this match, he came out you know in the full hat and glasses and didn't later and did he? Later on, he just came out yeah in a bandana and um, a tasseled t-shirt, fluorescent green t-shirt. But one thing he always said was like when doing like you know meeting the sort of the meet and greets, which you didn't get so much in his ear, and you get a lot more now. But you know, if you imagine that Randy, if Randy Savage was still with us and he was doing um, you know WrestleMania travel package meet and greets or whatever, he would always wear either his full-on ring gear, which I think he also did when he'd appear on, like, British TV shows, like the Big Breakfast Games and Master stuff like that. and stuff. Yeah, 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 he did. He'd be in full-on gear because he always... His, his philosophy, which I, I think is very fair, he'd say people don't want to see Randy Poff and the macho man wears these outrageous outfits and out larger than life and full of colour and that's what people pay to see, so that's what he gave it. Love it. And you're right, though. I wonder whether the changing of the gear for the main event was just his sort of ethos when it came to doing multiple matches in one night. Obviously, the famous one's WrestleMania 4, where he dressed completely differently yeah. for every single match. And maybe it was just the same thought process. Maybe he couldn't quite be asked to get different cost, different, <laughs> totally different gear. But maybe if he switched the jacket and the hat for the T-shirt and the bandana, that would just about do. That's what happens when the uh, when the guaranteed money and the creative control comes in. He's like, nope, nope. Had to well, get no. in. But here's, maybe 
maybe he spent his budget that he was going to spend on uh, excess luggage at the airport on coke instead. So yeah, yeah, good, good stuff. Bandana um, and a shirt was all he could fit in. <laughs> Here's food for thought for you guys quickly. Uh, in Japan during his peak. Masa Chono probably did Randy Savage formula matches and got away with it because of his overwhelming charisma. But then he comes over to America and he doesn't really mm. have that rapport and it just comes across like someone phoning in because there's really not much difference between the two's performances on the night. And yet Randy Savage, yeah, he's beloved and understandably so. That's a good point. Very yeah. fair point, yep. yeah. Okay, so we've got a, a flustered Bobby Heenan having trouble with his chair and his papers in the broadcast position, <laughs> uh, which is fantastic to watch. Um, mean Gene then talks to the only man in the triangle match not involved in the World Cup, Ric Flair, um, who I think may have been sharing the good stuff with Savage, but he essentially vows to win the World Heavyweight title tonight. And so we go to the final match of the World Cup. Uh, with the, the, the scores poised at 3-3, it's Kensuke Sasaki v Sting. So not only is Sasaki's first name mis- constantly mispronounced, it's misspelled on the caption as well. He comes out to the second version of the great Mutar's old entrance music, because, you know, in WCW's eyes, they're all the same, aren't they? <laughs> um, and this is the thing. This I've got to say, this whole event, and, and maybe this is one of the reasons why there was no World Cup in '96. There just seems to me to be a complete lack of respect shown to New Japan's personnel by WCW on this show. I mean, is that just me, or did you guys pick on that? Pick up on that as well? No, well, you're right. You're right. Yeah, I, I agree. For you know, for someone who was coming in quite cold, having not watched the Nitros in the run-up to it. Uh, and not being, a, you know, aficionado of Japanese wrestling back then, I knew it didn't give you anything, gave you no meat on the bone about these guys. Clearly, nobody was doing their homework, and therefore they were just bodies. You know, they were just cannon fodder for WCW to be. Almost, it was, it was, you know, it felt utterly pointless in a vacuum. Yeah, if you consider all of the issues we've already documented, the uh, the styles clashes, the the lack of structure in the matches, the issues going on with it, the lack of build-up for them, the fact that they've got wrestlers pulling double duty, and then you've got the 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 main event involving most of these guys afterwards, just everything about it, it's, it should be a really cool, cutting-edge idea. And as we know from the time, Eric Bischoff was all about trying to be ahead of the times, and, and that's to be respected. Nitro going head to head Raw was, was such a cutting-edge move. It was ballsy and it worked. As we will find out as we delve through the watch-along chronology in 1996 it gets even better from there but this particular attempt at doing such a thing was unfortunately a a massive swing and a miss you could say dean it was conceived by a moron and engineered by a git and if any of our listeners understand that reference and can tell me where that comes from we might just have to invite you on the show (laughs) (laughs) kudos if you get that reference Oh, man. Yes. I mean, I'm just what you're going going back on on what you were saying, Paul. I mean, this is a similar thing to what I said previously on on other podcasts about the world of sport um, 
run that was done in the UK last year that there weren't any sort of video packages to introduce these characters. Um, and from from looking at like I've I've got here um, a list of worldwide um, results from '95, mm. and these guys yeah when they they did come over to do some tapings um, at the tail end of '95, so they you know they were on air. Um, in in the the weeks leading up, or some of them were on air in the weeks leading up to um, to Starcade. So you had you know the American males took against uh, Kanemoto in Atani um, is one match, and and there is um, you know Jushin Liger in a squash match, and Kanemoto against Mr. JL. So you've got um, you've got some exposure there, but mm. that's on worldwide. When you know, we've done the Nitro watch-alongs, and we've not had any of the Japanese stars on on the flagship show, have we, Liam? No, the uh, build-up's just uh, it beggars belief. To I mean, of course, guys like us are really going to rack our brains over what could have been, but I suppose from the point of view of the the respective head offices, this is a potentially money spinning crossover full of politics full of complications it's just such a shame and it's funny how there were so many um independent wrestling companies who in the wake of this and several other disasters of cross promotional situations they went out of their way to one of the biggest self challenges independent companies had was we we are going to do this and give the fans that sort of buzz and we're going to do it right if you think like uh, Ring of Honor versus Combat Zone Wrestling springs to mind because that was really well done. Mm, yeah. Uh, FWA inviting various companies. I, I mean, they had the uh, the series. Was it XWA? Frontiers of Honor. In, yeah, with Ring of Honor themselves. Or was it XWA up in the north that f- temporarily folded the FWA? That was really well done. There's no, been that so was, many um, examples. That was I, IPW. That was, uh, yeah, I, IPW versus FWA. Um, oh, was it? That happened. Yeah. X, ah. XWA was kind of the revival of it by Greg Lambert. Ah, gotcha. Well, I knew there was some sort of dovetail there, but yeah. But but they are instances of it being done with, with tact, with balance, and with intrigue. It can be done, but this was just this was just the bottom line to these guys, and again, swing and a miss. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, let's move on then. So um, what were we saying? Yeah, so this match, this is Sasaki v Sting. Um, Sting comes out with the American flag um, and bear in mind that this is the last match of the World Cup and the next match on Starcade is the uh, is the triangle match so I don't want to labour the point but Sting could be wrestling in the last three matches of the night um, so yeah Sting has got the American flag and ironically Sasaki is the current United States champion um, which he, he brings out with him he uh, actually won that from Sting at the WCW World in Japan event in Tokyo that we were talking about a moment ago um, in further WCW logic Sasaki would drop the belt at the end of this event in a dark match <laughs> one man gang of all people who himself would lose it to Conan in January um, Sasaki jumps Sting from the start although the director completely misses it because he's busy showing fans in the front row um, about a minute into the match Sting hits a Stinger splash already and then blatantly calls a spot right in front of the camera although I couldn't quite make out what he was saying um, the, the offense is going back and forth between the two here um, once again the commentary is awful they start by talking about Sting facing Flair in the triangle match rather than talking about the match in the ring um, 
Heenan asks a question. Dusty says he's already addressed that. And Heenan, and I don't know if this is Heenan being in character or losing the losing his rag or what, but he rather angry says that he can't understand what Dusty is saying. Um, <laughs> and I just thought, well, what hope does that give the rest of us? You know, um, Dusty says Sasaki isn't starstruck about facing Sting, which you know, seeing as he beat Sting to win the US title, which they all completely fail to acknowledge. Why on earth would he be starstruck? Um, Sasaki puts Sting in a Scorpion Deathlock, which is a novel twist. Sting gets out and soon picks up the pace. He lands his trademark face buster before putting Sasaki in the Scorpion Deathlock of his own. We have a little bit of a struggle, and Sting kind of walks Sasaki back into the middle of the ring, and eventually, and this is uh, the era before tapping out, so Sasaki verbally submits in a match which goes just a shade under seven minutes as our final match of the tournament. Um, and WCW, thanks to Sting, has won the World Cup, um, which, according to Dusty Rhodes, is the strongest statement made in the history of wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> as he takes over the Shivani mantle for hyperbole. Um, to add to the commentary, Joy, Shivani says that the crowd are chanting USA and literally in the next breath says that Chris Benoit is out here, even though Benoit is Canadian. Um, and there is no, I did note that um, everyone else was wearing a Team WCW shirt with a US flag in it and Benoit was wearing a Black Horseman t-shirt. Um, so they get presented with the uh, World Cup, which is absolutely bloody enormous. Um, mean Gene says he hopes that this will become an annual tradition. I'm not sure how many other people were thinking that, although I think the rest of the Observer said that that was the plan originally, wasn't it? Yeah, then they fucking blew it, didn't they? Look at the state of this show. <laughs> that's what we just said though isn't it it, sh- it should have been a great concept it could have been the November pay-per-view and to give you right, to, to, to hammer home just how avoidable some of these gaffes were here's an idea for you right you, you, you're building it on pay you're building it up on, on Nitro and that and you come out and you say right the seven team WCW guys involved you list Johnny B. Bad, you list Benoit you list uh, Alex Wright, you list Guerrero, and then you pick three other mid-carders, just guys who fit along that mould, you know, Malenko, JL, one other, along those lines. You're planning to use the stars because you've got, uh, I'm guessing there's a political thing, oh yeah, that won't be job to the to the stars. All right, but you bill it as, the, as these guys, the, the main eventers are in the triangle match. Then you have the Japanese wrestlers jump three of the guys. You don't even have to show it. If you can't fly them in to do an angle, you say it happened off camera. But you mention them by name. You say they, they've really messed up JL and uh, and these guys really bad and we're free short. Oh, no. Japan, are really they really mean business. These these killers like Liger and Kanemoto and Otani have, have hurt these guys. What are we going to do? Sting, Savage completely understandable in a in a storyline situation would step up and go right we'll do it i know we've got a match but we can't lose this tournament we will t- we'll fill two of those slots uh sting is in luger's ear look you're my friend you're usa you are wcw through and through let's do this come on we need you luger fire up the lex s- express no <laughs> selfishly he thinks to himself well I can win another trophy, and then you have a thing where he wangles it so that he is lower in the order. He he wrestles the third match. Sting wrestles the last. Yeah, sure, I'll help you, buddy. And he's currying favour with his friend, and yet he's still got the jump on him in the triangle match. You could play into that as well. 
and then you've Although, got your stars. How I, I yeah. just came up with this while we're doing this fucking podcast. Honestly, <laughs> is Although, it really would, that difficult? Would would the likes of Malenko and JL sell any pay per views? Although, or or would the pay per views be sold on the back of the uh, the talking, triangle match in the world title? That's we're talking uh, we're talking a one week span here. You, you announce the World Cup, you say, this is Team USA. The next week, oh, they've been jumped. And then Sting and that jump in. But it just makes sense as to why you're doing it like that. And it actually puts significance on the main event as appearing in the World Cup. It puts significance on the World Cup being something you want to win. It gives you a reason to hate these Japanese guys who, as you said earlier, are just, you know, they've got Sonny Ono with them. Boo! Yeah. Just all in one fell swoop, and I'm, I'm, I've never done anything behind the scenes of wrestling in my life. But cohesive stories, anyone who's passionate about anything can tell you. It follows a simple: where you either give a shit and you can come up with something like that, or you don't give a shit and you don't try. You know, and that, and that's the thing this smacks off. They've, they've not even tried to make it a thing, and that's why it didn't come back the second year. If they gave a shit about it, I guarantee you. It would have been, it would have gone to two thousand one in the company's death. And you'd also thought if they did want to come back with uh, another one, they'd have had uh, New Japan win it in the first year, so WCW can try and uh, try and win it back. Yeah, that's tried and tested. Mm. TNA well, did that. Yeah, when well, the what was it the World X Cup or World something? World X Cup yeah. was actually brilliant. Yeah, really yeah. good. That was um, yeah, that was where they had. Because the first year they'd like James Mason and Robbie Dynamite and people from All Star, wasn't it? That's like, right, yeah. Yeah. Some great cracking lines with uh, Jerry Lynn, Chris Sabin, like a mentorship going on. Uh, remember, uh, Team Canada became a thing, and they lasted. You know, they they were a staple of TNA for three years. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. And that was just a thing for the World Cup at first, but no, they, mm. they stayed the distance they as, a, yeah. as a heel faction. They kept you going, definitely. Absolutely brilliant. Okay, so um, we have have put the World Cup behind us. It is now time for the final portion of the evening. It is, the first of all, the triangle match for the world title, Lex Luger versus Sting versus Flair. Um, Even the pre-match hype video highlights the lack of logic in that Flair's the only one who hasn't already wrestled tonight. However, and we've criticised them for for not doing this before, so kudos for them for doing it. In the uh, pre-match vid- hype video, they state the rules of the match. So uh, a coin toss will determine which two wrestlers start, although he <laughs> himself mentioned on commentary that he didn't see that happen. Um, the idea with that was quite quite um, well done in that they said that the um, all three men would toss a coin and whoever comes up odd, who's the odd man out, goes to the apron. So, you know, I love if, that. Yeah, if two people... Get heads, the person who gets tails goes to the apron and so on. I thought that was a really good little idea, which therefore they didn't do at all. Um, and then the third man will be on the apron and wrestlers will be tagged in and out. So Flair is wearing black trunks, not red. So does that telegraph the result? Paul, are you familiar with the Ric Flair red trunks rule? <laughs> I am not. No? Right. If, and I think, I think Liam, we've discussed this before. I'm sure we have. We have. If Yes, if Ric Flair is wearing red trunks and red boots and red knee pads, he is losing. <laughs> right? Brilliant. You think you think about uh, WrestleMania, Res- eight, WrestleMania eight, eight, the only one I can think of. Yep. 
he wore red. WrestleMania 18, where he took on Undertaker, he was ah, wearing yeah. red. Um, when he fought Bret Hart in Saskatoon and lost the world title, oh, yeah. he was wearing red. I think one of the matches against Ricky Steamboat, maybe WrestleMania 89, he was wearing red. Um, ironically, his retirement match, where everyone knew he was going to lose, he wore blue. But, you know, that's the <laughs> exception to the rule. But, yes, um, go, we, we are yet to find a major sort of pay-per-view match where Flair wears red and wins. They must be one out there somewhere. Maybe he's a massive Star Trek fan. Yeah, Paul, I'm really sorry about this, mate, by the way. Uh, but what do you expect coming from the guy who created a mass spreadsheet documenting which channel England <laughs> were playing on? And whether they want <laughs> what, what this is his latest pet project oh well I think all the power to him mate all the power I expect full results in fact we need to find out Rick's most successful colour <laughs> I, mean, yes. I did on, on the subject of Ric Flair and his attire I did quite like the fact that he was wearing the black with the red and yellow um, knee pads and boots. I can't ever recall him wearing anything like that before. And do, was it a nod to the Hulkster? Do we think there was anything in that, or is it just the just got dressed in the dark this morning? I I wondered that because of the red and yellow, but also he had yellow boots. But I've never ever recall seeing Ric Flair wearing yellow pad knee pads and yellow trunks. No, I think he borrowed them off Ronnie Garvin, didn't he? <laughs> but no I, I don't think I've ever seen him wear three different colours either we're getting really into the nerdy shit here aren't we but I, I know it's straight away I don't think I've ever seen Ric Flair wearing three different colours in his ring wear we, we basically need to get Ric Flair on the podcast shouldn't be too hard should it should we just give him a call yeah <laughs> Yeah, we'll just give him a buzz. Hey, you've hey, you've been out for a curry with him, haven't you? I, I actually used to have his number for a few years, um, and we used to swap a few texts. But I had to delete it when I started ringing him up, pissed up. When I was pissed, <laughs> when I was pissed up, and I was trying to impress my friends by ringing up Ric Flair, I realised I needed to delete his number. Yeah, but if anyone's going to forgive you for ringing them up whilst pissed, <laughs> surely it's Ric Flair. Yeah, well, I thought it was. I, I thought I'd quit while I was ahead. I did it twice, and I was like, no, 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 stop, stop this silliness. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Deleted it. Paul, you've got to do the maths here with the time zones, right? If you're out of an evening in the UK and you're smashed out, you're not. That was the problem. Uh, and you know, say worst case scenario, Ric Flair is eight hours behind on the West Coast, and it's like the middle of that. Oh, who am I kidding? He's going to be drunk as well. You're fine. <laughs> Keep doing it. He's gonna be free shoes to the wind, no matter what time you call him. Bear, yeah, bear, oh, in, bear in mind, and I have this on very good authority that Ric Flair night out usually ends at about ten o'clock in the morning. So um, yes, ours and ours was similar. Yeah, ours was similar. <laughs> yeah. But I've got this really weird thing with all all the guys I used to have gone the piss with in TNA. They've all ended up teetotal. <laughs> it's, the, the top three I've had drinking sessions with were Jarrett, Angle and uh, Flair, all three are now teetotal, which, well, actually, I don't know if Flair is, Flair should be medically, but I don't think he is. I'm sure he said yes, but I don't believe that. No, no, neither do I, neither do I. But um, um, DDP came over for a yoga tour and he did the spoken word thing as well at the um, Backyard Comedy Club, Bethnal Green. Oh, yeah. And he mentioned meeting up with Flair after he came out of hospital and about how he, his wife and Flair all got shit-faced. <laughs> so Brilliant. no from second hand evidence no he has not even attempted to slow down fair enough yeah. two, out, two out of three 
Fair enough. So uh, anyway, back to the action. Luger has won the coin toss. So we start with Flair and Sting and Luger on the apron. Um, Sting goes for the Scorpion early because he's only just wrestled. But again, the commentators miss this completely. Um, we get we basically get the usual Flair Sting shenanigans that we've seen a million times before, but never, ever fail to entertain. Um, all the while, that sneaky Luger is standing on the apron watching his good mate Sting run his energy levels down. Um, Flair taunts Luger, tries to lure him into the ring. But after, and I wasn't, I didn't have a stopwatch, but I estimated about 10 minutes into the match and Luger still hasn't got involved in it, which is, it's just brilliant, and I can I I could just imagine Liam you laughing at this while there yeah, Luger's just taking it easy on the apron. Sort of. I did have a few issues with the dichotomy of this. Like, if you think about, it, they keep talking about how I think she only keeps saying over and over again. Uh, you know, if if I was in this match, I wouldn't tag out. You know, because you know you you have to be in the match and not the one on the apron to to be able to win the match, which is fair enough. But again, the psychology. You're there on the apron, you can make a save. And if you try and wrestle the whole match, not only are you more likely to win, you're also more likely to be the one pinned through getting beaten down and exhausted. Yep. Uh, it would be so easy to make the point of you think of cycling, for instance, and the peloton. You have to go you, you have to go in the bunch. You have to try and get yourself a breather. Uh you know, to, in a position where you can launch an attack at the right time. And these things are so easy to put across. And it's one thing if you're going to have a commentary team who misses all of the psychology. But the fact that Schiavone, and this was a thing of his, he would attempt to be uh, lateral thinking a lot of the time and bring up these points. But he, he wouldn't bring up the other side of it. And in the end, he sounds like he's shitting on the product and the booking. When all it takes is someone, whether himself or someone to give a rebuttal, to point out the other side of it. And then it has some depth as analysis. Otherwise, you're just shitting on it. So that was a bit weird. But yeah, if you look at this, this is... um, I know this is very early on in the days of triple threat matches. And I find it fascinating because of that alone. But if you look at this, this is pretty much three singles matches, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, this was the the the, the triple threat match that that really put those kind of things on the map was was when ECW did the yeah. line was crossed, which was earlier on that year, which was um, um, Shane Douglas, Sabu, and Terry Funk, wasn't it? Might have even been the year before, but yeah, they, they it was very cutting edge for ECW, and obviously ECW has the the, the lawlessness, and I remember they did the uh, was it the triple threat tag team match as well with the tables and stuff was it the triple threat and the pit bulls and i think the eliminators i, I don't know i can't remember what yeah taz and well, sabu um... were in there weren't they they were one of the teams but yeah, yeah they did a lot of this stuff but this is wcw like trying to get in on this new phenomenon with kid gloves with the tag and yeah the the, the coin toss concept is good and the, uh and and the, it's not a terrible you know it should be better than it is but yeah, it's a bit too tentative, and a lot of the time this match is just too boring. Indeed, it's um well yeah, it kind of as I well we'll go on to say later, it kind of <laughs> does drag, but um yeah, it's um so Luger and then Luger's first involvement in the match is when he steps into the ring to attempt to break up Sting's pinfall on Flair, but um Flair kicks out anyway and. And it's almost like Luger's been caught with his hand in the cookie jar, uh, which is I thought was brilliant. But yeah, that prompts Sting to tag Luger into the match. 
Um, after a few minutes, Flair chop blocks Luger's leg, starts working on his left knee, ready for the figure four. Finally, he locks the move on with additional leverage on the ropes, of course. Um, Luger turns it over as um, Shivani says how easy it is to get out of the move. Cheers, Tony. That'll help. <laughs> Finally, Flair, <laughs> finally, Flair tags in Sting. Now we have Sting v. Luger for the first time in the match. Um, they lock up. We get a clean break in the ropes. It's cagey, but the crowd don't seem to be that much into the two of them fighting. Um, even though they're meant to be mates, you'd thought that you know that would be something the crowd would pick up on more, but they don't seem to care. Um, Luger hoists Sting up in a torture act later on, but Sting's boot catches referee Nick Patrick for one of his legendary bumps. Um, Flair sneaks into the ring from behind Luger and once again chop blocks his leg. He then throws Sting over the top rope, but the ref doesn't see it because, of course, that should be a disqualification. Sting lands on top of Luger on the floor. Um, Sting uh, fails to scramble into the ring in time and the dirtiest player in the game wins the match by count out, which I mean, it was a creative finish, which played into Flair's character. But after nearly half an hour of wrestling, the match and the, the match and the, the, the outcome or the way the outcome was arrived at. Am I, I'm not the only one thinking it could have been so much better around my pool. You are not. It was just so muddled. That was the word that came to mind when I was watching it. You know, they, like you touched on earlier, they clearly wanted to get on in this triple threat concept, but didn't want to go whole hog and copy it. So they did some sort of bastardized version of it themselves. And I just, it just, it wasn't going to work. It was never going to work. I remember looking at the results before I watched this and I looked at it and went, triple threat match, Sting, Lex Luger and Ric Flair. Ric Flair wins by count out. I was like, eh? <laughs> How does that one work? Um, and lo and behold, it didn't work at all. Um yeah, I think this one would have been so much better as as a, as a traditional three-way match. I did like the only part of it I really did enjoy was that psychology between Sting and Luger, which I'm I'm with Liam. I think that was such a great part of those early Nitro months. That it was such a cool concept until they just chat all over it. Um, but it really played into this. For me, the moment of the match was where Luger was about, you know, Lex Luger was about to show his true colours, but you know, got caught with his hand in the cookie jar, you say, so to speak. And it, that was the one moment that made me sort of sit up and take notice. The rest of it was just pretty damn dull with a, an ending that made you feel cheated. Yeah, if you think about it, this pay-per-view is just chock-a-block with these contemporary concepts that should have made WCW, you know, one step ahead. So cool, in essence. you got the inter-promotional World Cup series. You've got a triangle match. You've got the, the Sting-Luger storyline. And by far the most intriguing thing going on in the, in the main scene, at the very least. And all these things. And they, and they fucking WCW'd a lot of them. <laughs> and it's all just uh, uh, the word you use there Paul was muddled and I think that's the best thing for it because they really have just muddled up these these brilliant concepts I think he, he, if I was to talk to guys who are running wrestling promotions now they would salivate at the prospect of uh, of running such things with a jump on the opposition you know mm. that would be the thing that sets them apart and uh, no oh, it's just it's such a this, this should be so awesome and it is just so shit <laughs> not just the match because the match isn't terrible uh, there's a lot worse on this show but it, to an extent also this match yeah it's 
it, I mean, this this whole this whole show is it's it's classic WCW, isn't it? Oh man, it's it's not it's under the radar compared to some of their more. You know, it's it's nowhere near David Arquette winning the world title or the Shotmaster tripping over the uh, skirting board. But it's can you really say it's not comparable? It's just not as it's not as uh, celebrated or. or, or for lack of a better term, as one of those WCW moments. But my God, did they WCW a lot of really cool ideas in one three-hour block. They just went for the path of least resistance and everything. It was as if they, like you say, they got this great concept. They got a good opportunity with setting it all up with New Japan in the first place. And then when it came down to actually executing, it's, you know, you get the feeling that they, you know, shot their load on actually getting this to the table. And then once they'd actually done that, it was just right, right, we've got, we've got what we want to, we've got where we need to be. And um, we've got the crossover. Uh, let's just throw it out there. Let's just do it. And it just feels like there was no thought given to the actual execution at all. Um, and it just came, you know, the whole, it just phoned in for me. The whole pay-per-view was so phoned in. So non-event, like there was nothing on this card to get the pulse racing really. Um, and it just, it's just a sad Sad missed opportunity. And we've still got the main event to enjoy. Oh, joy. <laughs> so, oh, yes, joy. It is time for the World Heavyweight Championship. Randy Savage in his T-shirt and bandana against Ric Flair. They've wheeled out Michael Buffer for what is surely his most pointless booking of the year because he's now introducing two men that we've already seen. And, and <laughs> Dean, Dean, for you to say that because you view most Michael Buffer appearances in WCW is pointless for you to put that's high praise. Indeed. <laughs> are we, uh, and the, are we going to Michael Buffer? No, we're not going to Michael Buffer. Oh yes, we are going to Michael Buffer. It was like, oh, yes. he's, he stood in the ring. What do you think he's going to be there for? <laughs> just for, just to say hello. Here's Michael Buffer to juggle whilst the rest Goodness of me. Goodness so, um, me. They, they start off quickly, like two men who either want to get the main event over and done with, or maybe have been told that the show's overrunning. Um, Flair lands chops, Savage lands punches. There's no feeling out process here at all. Within a minute of the match starting, Paul Orndorff comes out in a neck brace following his attack on Nitro by the Horseman a few weeks ago, where they uh, spike pile drives him on the ramp. Um, Flair does the flare flop in the corner to the outside. Savage comes off the top to the floor with an axe handle, but Flair catches him with a punch to the stomach. Um, Flair is now taking over on Savage, brawling on the floor, peppering him with punches. Um, back in the ring, Flair starts working on Savage's bandaged left arm. Savage then starts gaining some momentum, so Flair catches him coming off the ropes in a sleeper hold. Um, despite just wrestling a match, he is dominating the champion. Savage fires back with clotheslines. He's making quick covers to try to get the win, which is, again, completely missed by the commentators, who have been <laughs> fucking awful this entire match, Joe. Um, Savage sends Flair down with more punches. He goes up top, but at this point, Jimmy Hart jumps up on the apron to distract the ref. Um, Savage tries another axe handle. Flair punches in the stomach again, and then Hart throws his megaphone over um, to Flair over the ref's head, which Flair thankfully catches. And I've I've got to say that Jimmy Hart at this moment is absolutely brilliant because he's virtually draped over the ropes and just just being more of a distraction than than you can ever want someone to be. He's an absolute 
you know, unsung, an unsung hero of this match in my eyes. Um, so yes, Flair has got the megaphone in his hand. Savage kicks him in the stomach. Flair drops the megaphone and Savage nails Flair in the head with it all behind the ref's back. And wouldn't you know, Liam, Flair comes up bleeding. <laughs> no, it can't be right. You know all the sharp, jagged edges you get on a megaphone, yeah? It's, <laughs> it's, it's one of them. Um, and this uh, is surely because during, this was the era of the tit-for-tat wrestling war. You know, we don't, yes. we've been two weeks away, two weeks previously, where Medusa had dropped the WWF women's title in the bin on Nitro. So this was the era we're in. And the week before, in your house, Bret Hart against Davy Boy Smith, and Bret Hart had done a monstrous blade job, which he then tried to say was, uh, was a, a legit cut. And so, um, basically, WW, WCW, right? well, if you're going to have someone bleeding on your pay-per-view main event, so are we, and got Flair to just gig himself open for the hell of it. <laughs> um, but then, then on the other hand, Flair's forehead is basically made of crepe paper anyway, so if you even tapped it with a, with a megaphone for real, you'd probably bust him open. Um, Savage then leaps impressively three-quarters of the way across the ring to land the big elbow, the most effort he's put in on this show. Um, Hart, as I said, is still on the apron, draped over the ropes and everything. The ref tries to put him back in the corner to the corner. Um, Brian Pillman then runs in, runs up to the top rope. He's intercepted by Savage. He throws him into Chris Benoit, who just as he's entering the ring, um, then with the ref trying to pull Savage off of Pillman, not like that. Anderson, Arn Anderson comes in, um, grabs Savage, nails him with a pair of brass knucks, pulls Flair across to cover Savage. Pillman voluntarily leaves the ring. The referee turns around, makes the three count, and we have ourselves a new WCW World Heavyweight Champion in Rick Flair. And despite massive amounts of heel interference and Jimmy Hart managing him. The crowd still erupt in celebration <laughs> and babyface pop for Ric Flair once again becoming world champion. Um, Pillman shouts yes, gobs all over the camera and then starts whipping ramps <laughs> with the big gold belt, which must, I mean, wrestling belts are heavy. They are. I don't know. I don't know about like the the uh, replica ones that you can buy, um, or even the uh, the new Bray Wyatt one, which you can buy for six and a half grand plus. Tax. <laughs> I don't seen that. But actual legit wrestling belts weigh a ton, so that would hurt like a bastard. Um, what do you think of that? Our close to Starcade, Paul. Well, it happened, didn't it? You know, <laughs> there's there's two ways of looking at this one for me. Either it's impossible for Ric Flair and Randy Savage to do something that isn't entertaining. It's just, I think it's physically impossible for those two not to do something that makes me compelled to watch and gets my attention. The flip side of that is this is possibly the worst way that if they put out there to challenge themselves to have the worst possible match, the two of them could possibly have between them. I think mission accomplished. It's, um, you know, those guys are never going to have something truly terrible, but this was just like, I, my most, my favorite part of the match was you describing all action. It was just, <laughs> it was just brilliant. Like this, like Arn Anderson was just the, just the absolute piece de resistance, like coming in there and just wailing on Savage and six inches oh, away from the ref. Oh, it's just like none of this happened. What a fucking idiot. 
I, again, I'm so, you know I'm not someone who, who gets all up in arms about non-clean finishes, like especially a guy like Ric Flair and a faction like the Four Horsemen. To me, that is what they exist for to absolutely bamboozle the referee and cause as much chaos and destruction and 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 you know, just ill-mannered cheating as they possibly can. But even so, it was just it was just ludicrous. It was like. It was as if Vince Russo had been transported forward in time to do the last five minutes of the yeah, pay-per-view. It exactly. was just, it was just awful in every sense. And the fact that Ric Flair, those fans weren't cheering for Ric Flair winning the belt. They were cheering because they could go home. <laughs> they could go home and leave. It was just, just that. Yeah. See, what, what a, what a riot. I'm just, I'm just imagining the meeting of like, right, Randy. Yeah, you know, you know, you've got creative control. Yeah. So, how about right? We have we have Flair bleeding all over the place, so you've you've roughed him up real good, and he basically has interference from Brian Pillman and Chris Benoit and Arn Anderson, and he's got Jimmy Hart in his corner. Can he beat you then? Can he? Come on. <laughs> yeah, um, Doesn't work for me, brother. Not nope. non, non clean. <laughs> Is one thing, Paul, but this is intelligence insulting. <laughs> this was just it's... such a, uh, and that, but the, just to to blade himself that much for for no fucking reason. This was a circus main event, and the scary thing is, is that this doesn't get nearly the bad reputation as a year prior to this, when the good name of Starcade was sullied by a main event of Hulk Hogan versus his buddy. Ed Leslie, oh, the butcher. The butcher. <laughs> and to be brutally honest, this is just as bad a Starcade main event. But Flair and Savage's names alone get it passed, whereas just Ed Leslie main event in anything oh. kind of puts it right in the crosshairs of criticism. But they're both awful Starcade main events. And thankfully, we'd get a, a few better ones coming along. Although I say that, I, I, you know, 96 was Hogan uh, Piper, which it drew. It was a big attraction. Most of us didn't care to see it 11 years after it was first hot, but, but it was better than these two and it succeeded. Uh, Hogan Sting was amazing as a as a as a draw, and we know what they fucked up there. But still, it 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 accomplished what it was supposed to and drew people in. And the same can be said of '98 with uh, Goldberg and Nash, and things were still very much hot, but they blew that again. But at least those three were proper main events rather than this uh, this rush job of a of a fuck around with a referee who has to pretend that so many things that are happening right in front of him aren't. And yeah, Ed Leslie in 94. Oh, this is about as clean as a, a toilet in a shared Airbnb after a three day stag do, wasn't your, it? It your, was uh... your toilet. <laughs> My toilet, my you toilet did, right now. Yeah. You did tell us, you did tell us about on the air, right? Or maybe it wasn't. I don't know. I think. I think. Well, it is now. It is. It is now. My bowel movements are public property now. <laughs> I'm sorry, well, mate. I'm, I'm fine with that. I really am. I just feel sorry for everybody else. My bowel. Movements. I actually. I maybe maybe there's some subliminal uh, meshing going on here because all I've been, I've, I've never done a podcast where I've t- said the word poo or shit so much. Uh, I think. I think when I was talking about an island in the middle of a sea of poo earlier. I think I was actually probably thinking about my it's weekend. on the brain, it really is. <laughs> it feels like it. <laughs> so I've got to ask, um, Go this, this actually hasn't come up in conversation with 
any of us so far, but we we generally do the uh, the end of episode theme song. And given that no one has put forth an idea, I did have one. If you guys were game, go, go for it. Right. So I'm gonna hit play, and you guys are gonna love this. <laughs> no, I mean it. This is an awesome one. So don't worry. It's not some swerve, as Russo would say. Bro, this is a classic. And do you know what? Considering the fact that we've been doing things in chronological order with the watch-alongs and this pay-per-view, this will suit because this this goes along with one of the guys on this show. Here we go. What do you guys think of that, didn't I? Mate, you can't go wrong. Like when when WCW got it right with themes in the nineties, they really got it right. There was so there were so unashamedly nineties, unashamedly rip-offs half of them, but when they got it right, they were fucking great. It is a good, it is a good tune. It's definitely when you say about Luger's, you know, ancient tunes from this time. I'm already humming it in my head. It's not to me. It's not as good as the the NWA 1989, 1990 type era with the with the guitar and the uh, the, the he had a, a good sort of heelish swagger Stu, to that one. Stu Allen picked that one out, didn't he? Or I, I think he did. Yeah, we yeah. have definitely, we've Check definitely out had it. Halloween yes. Havoc '91 with Stu Allen. Really yeah. good episode. He's a big fan of mine. He thinks I talk too much. He's not wrong. <laughs> um, but um, that was a good episode. That was a cracking theme. Luger did well with those. But yeah, yeah, I knew you guys would be all about that. That is a good one. So, um, yeah, all in all, we've, we've kind of said this was a very weird, very disjointed show. Um, but then the only the only saving grace from this, I, I, I thought, at the close of things was, you know, now we've got, Benoit and Pillman in the um, in the Four Horsemen, and they've interfered in the World Title match. Does that mean we're going to get you know a couple of people like them, guys who can work, getting into the main event picture in 1996? Because you know, as we mentioned earlier, the three guys in the Triangle match they were in the main event of Starcade '89 six years ago. I feel like this was the point where Bad News Barrett would pop up with his gavel. <laughs> Sorry, Dean. Benefit of hindsight yeah. says he's got some bad news for you. 
<laughs> oh man yeah so this it, to me right you know you talk about nowadays like creating content that's what they talk about now isn't it creating content just to get out there well that was what this pay-per-view was it was just it was just there it was just there. everything about it was just there it was it was on the screen it was it was mildly entertaining or not for the most part of it, but it was completely immemorable, but it filled three hours and it filled the coffers and there was probably literally no more effort went into that than would be like a YouTube clip nowadays. It was, it was clickbait for the nineties. Yes, it was, wasn't it? Cause you, you, <laughs> yeah, it was. them, you lure them in with these cutting edge concepts and then you just half ass fucking all of them. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely right. A bit like X Factor celebrity version, eh? <laughs> but, but on the other hand, you know, if it's just after Christmas and I've got the choice of watching uh, WCW Starcade 95 or Call the Fucking Midwife, then God damn it, the wrestling's going on. <laughs> but what, at what point does Call the Midwife win? You know, when we do Ed Leslie in the main event? Oh, yeah, yeah. At least, at least Call the Midwife's got that really tasty looking nurse that was on, um, that was on, uh, what was it, Dancing? Was she on, was she on? Come strictly come dancing that year or whatever it was. I don't know. I'm just I'm just making it up. But yeah, you've this, lost us. You've really yeah. Lost sorry. Us. Hey, look. There is there. All I'll say is that Call the Midwife has some redeeming features that an Ed Leslie main event does not. <laughs> <laughs> and I never thought we'd come to a line like that to sign off our podcast. But we we will. It was sign only a matter off. of time with a tone we cut. <laughs> <laughs> so Paul Benson uh, just before you go just tell everyone how they can um, get hold of um, any details on Hooked on Wrestling um, and, and the uh, New Japan event coming up yeah awesome well first of all guys thank you very much for having me back and giving me the opportunity to talk nonsense again and, and plug the parties um, basically we've got we've got the New Japan parties as we said coming up on the 4th and the 5th of January and then also on the 26th of January We've got Royal Rumble parties. That's up and down the country, not just in London. So if anywhere in the country and you fancy a, a big old night of wrestling fun with instead of watching it in your bedroom on the network, watch it with dozens or hundreds even in certain places of fellow wrestling fans, you can do it with us. Um, just got to check out Hooked on uh, Tickets.co.uk for tickets. Or if you want a bit more information, we're on Facebook.com forward slash Hooked on Wrestling. And of course, yeah. During, during the next few weeks, we will be uh, we will be uh, mentioning that on our podcast. Um, I know it may be a bit annoying, but at least it's not Arn Anderson talking about chewable Viagra. <laughs> <laughs> what an image that that is! <laughs> um, so, on behalf of um, of Liam Paul, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, everyone, for downloading this episode. Wherever you get your podcast from, please do go onto uh, iTunes and rate and review us. Until next time, this is the Twisted Genius. Dean A is saying, we'll see you ringside.